This is a Federal News Network podcast. Congress, the Justice Department, and the courts continue to deal with the break-in at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. The Homeland Security Department is dealing with issues of its own. A report from its Office of Inspector General found that the department's Intelligence and Analysis Office had threat information but didn't tell everyone it should have. Joining me with more, DHS Principal Deputy Inspector General Glenn Sklar. Mr. Sklar, good to have you back. Great to be here, Tom. And I guess the principal finding is that, yes, they did have open source, legitimately obtained information about the Capitol Hill insurrection, riot, break-in, whatever you want to call it, but it didn't get out. So give us what you generally looked at and what you've generally found here. Yes, yeah, you might imagine, Tom, there's been a great deal of interest in learning about Homeland Security's role in the run-up to the events of January 6th, and specifically how the Department of Homeland Security's intelligence component performed in ferreting out potential risks. The intelligence unit is supposed to provide DHS and its federal, state, and local partners with timely intelligence to keep the homeland safe. And as hoped, the intelligence gathering unit actually did uncover a variety of risks, hiding right in plain sight prior to January 6th. For example, the group found that the January 6th event organizers were actually encouraging attendees to bring weapons to the Capitol on January 6th. They also found that there were threats of violence against various law enforcement agencies. They also saw individuals boasting online about sacrificing their lives while conducting violence at the U.S. Capitol. And again, we looked at thousands of emails and text messages from the intelligence group, and we could see that the Homeland Security employees collecting this information, they're becoming increasingly concerned about the prospect of real trouble on January 6th. And I could share a couple of those messages with you if you'd like. would like that. Let me just make sure that we clarify that the INA unit does use open source They don't have any wiretaps and they don't have anything like other elements of the IC might have, the intelligence community. So this was not something that they got in a nefarious manner. That's exactly right. It's all open source information. It's information out there in the public domain. Let me just share with you a couple text messages from concerned DHS intelligence employees that they share with their coworkers. You know, basically information they found online. Quote, I found a map of all the exits and entrances to the Capitol building. I feel like people are actually going to try and hurt politicians. January 6th is going to be crazy, end quote. And here's one more message shared between two coworkers, each responsible for collecting what we talked about, this open source intelligence, where they express concerns about the future. And here's the quote. I mean, people are talking about storming Congress, bringing guns, willing to die for the cause, hanging politicians with rope, end quote. So as you can see, Tom, there are serious concerns expressed by these DHS employees to each other in private text conversations between themselves in advance. They weren't shared with federal, state, and local officials. Right. And there is one little twist in what they're supposed to do, and that is be able to sort out actual what they consider true threats versus hyperbole. And is there any sliver of chance they thought this was the hyperbole and not really a threat? I think that was a real problem. I think they were actually uh, somewhat worried that these were just exaggerated folks boasting online and that they weren't real threats that were actionable and that they could do something about. Right. So they didn't create what you call an intelligence communication or an intelligence product, although they did, but it came out on the 8th of June, which was a little bit late. Yeah, right. That's not so helpful. Yeah, we we found three main problems with the uh, intelligence group. First, many of the individuals that were tracking what was happening online, they're really inexperienced. 
in a limited training. Second, the individuals tracking online activities, they didn't follow those existing intelligence guidelines and they demonstrated some sort of cognitive bias. What do I mean by that? Example, were the threats that I just read to you, those quotes, were they merely hyperbole or were they legitimate threats that required action? And in the end, the intelligence community employees tracking online communications thought the storming of the US Capitol was unlikely or simply not possible, so they didn't act. And finally, one is to look at the event in the context of its time. Uh, the office that we reviewed, specifically the DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis, had just been criticized for being too aggressive in reporting open source information about the unrest in Portland, Oregon. And that was during the summer of 2020. And in that case, inexperienced employees scooped up information about journalists, and they were heavily criticized for doing that. So as you might imagine, as a result, the information collectors told us they were quite reticent about drawing conclusions about the January 6th risks. And in the end, they didn't move this information forward to federal, state, and local law enforcement partners. We're speaking with Glenn Sklar, Principal Deputy Inspector General at the Homeland Security Department. So basically, they were gun-shy, to use a bad metaphor. But ordinarily, who would they have shared this information with, or should they have? Typically, it would go to uh, federal, state, and local partners. And there's a network that they would share it widely. They would obviously share it across all of the different DHS law enforcement entities here, too, such as the Secret Service or TSA, the Federal Protective Service. And is there some sort of medium by which they do this officially, like a LEO type of network that those that would have to respond would be looking for? There actually is an official network, and unfortunately, that official network was not used for this purpose. We shared somewhat informally, but typically it would go through the Homeland Security Intelligence Network. And did you ask them why they sent the information out after the fact? Because I guess by then they knew, hmm, it really did happen. Well... It was a little bit late. The bottom line is, you know, we're hoping that in the future they act much more quickly and they really do follow the policy. And we did have a few recommendations for them, Tom. First and foremost, they need to be better trained, especially the new employees. They need faster turnaround time for intelligence products going to our federal, state, and local partners. They need to develop policies on the timely issuance of warnings. And they definitely need greater redundancy across DHS intelligence community in terms of sharing threats. So, you know, there is one bit of hopeful news here to end on, Tom. Uh, The intelligence group was incredibly helpful and cooperative during the course of our work. They did give us broad access to all the documents, to all the witnesses, they made them available, and they've already begun to implement our recommendations. But there's one question that still bugs me a little bit because you said they were inexperienced and they had been kind of burned by what had happened earlier in Portland. Was there no experienced person around that they could take this email or take this, what they were seeing and saying, what do you think? I mean, it seems like you would have some counsel, some collaboration with someone, an old hand at it before deciding, eh, we'll just sit on it. Not really. Uh, The majority of the information collectors had less than one year of experience. And to the extent that they had access to more experienced personnel, uh, they themselves were somewhat inexperienced. So really, it's a fairly new organization that was really getting set. They just expanded, and the timing was just very, very unfortunate. And has the department moved to make sure that that process happens, that there's an oversight to it or a place they can check upward, you know, up the ladder to make sure that their hunches are valid? Yeah, they're definitely improving their uh, training for new collectors, and they certainly are making more experienced personnel available to uh, these entry-level folks. 
I mean, DHS is the agency that originated, if you see something, say something. So this seems to be a good kind of case history in that. Obviously, if you see something before January 6th, you want to say something, not on January 8th. But again, uh, we're hopeful that uh, they are taking our recommendations and suggestions seriously, and we do feel that the future uh, should be brighter. All right. Glenn Sklar is Principal Deputy Inspector General at Homeland Security. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. Great to be here. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader, that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.